I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Welcome back to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Mike. This is Kate. Today, we have a very special guest. Kate, would you like to talk about who this is briefly? Yeah. So, I found out about this guest, I don't know, just like through the interwebs like you do. And I incorporated her work. I I touched upon it in my book, Do Less, because it was so powerful. So she was a palliative caregiver for many, many years, I think eight years. And she wrote a book based on her experience called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Her name is Bronnie Ware. And we thought during this week that is really kicking off the holiday season here in the United States, it's Thanksgiving in a couple of days when this episode comes out, that it was the perfect time to focus on regret-free living. When we get together with our families around the holidays, a lot of stuff can come to the surface. Like sometimes we might feel like, oh, we're seeing our family and they're asking us about what we're doing. And we feel like our lives aren't keeping pace with what they should be, or we feel behind, or we feel like we should be doing something else or what, you know, blah, 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 blah. A lot of times just like family and the holidays can mark the passage of time in a way that feels uncomfortable. And so while it's also a wonderful week and Thanksgiving is by far my favorite holiday, I wanted to have this conversation about regret-free living with Bronnie Ware because it's such a powerful way to live our lives so that we're really proud of them and so that we're fully living them instead of feeling bad about the way that we're living them. So as we head into this holiday season, and especially as you're gathering with your family and sort of seeing the passage of time, perhaps you don't see these people all the time. And so you only see them once a year or twice a year. It kind of makes time feel very present. We wanted to have Bronnie on. So do you want to tell yeah, us about Yeah, so Bronnie is a speaker. She's a free spirit, author, mother, storyteller, nature lover, teacher, songwriter, traveler, and gentle rebel. As Kate said, she wrote the book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. It's a life transformed by dearly departing. She also has two other, she's the author of two other books, Your Year for Change, 52 Reflections for Regret-Free Living, and Bloom, which is a tale of courage, surrender, and breaking through upper limits. She lives in northern or northern New South Wales, Australia, and her favorite role is as a mother, her favorite teacher is nature and she also loves swimming nature photography bike riding real life conversations and waking up every day to the songs of the birds that's amazing. she's a very sweet woman <laughs> i have to say this was an incredibly gentle conversation she brings such a gentle energy like we both finished the conversation and i just felt like we had been transported to another planet. I have never, we've done a lot of interviews together. We've done a lot of podcasts together. In the middle, like the first 15 minutes of this episode, you just like sat back in your chair and I was like, what just happened? Like it was like you went into full relaxation <laughs> mode and I was like, wow. Bronnie yeah, is, is really relaxing. She just, there's something about her voice and just also, you know, the way she lives and her wisdom. I just found it very relaxing. And I think, you know, when you spend eight years hanging out with people who are dying, 
you really do learn a lot about living. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a bit of a transmission during the conversation, a transmission for sure of presence and what really matters. So enjoy the episode to kick off our holiday season here and enjoy this wisdom from Bronny about regret-free living. And much love to your regret-free living. Welcome, Bronny. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. It's such an honor and delight to be here too. Yeah. So thank you for coming. Thank you for coming. I don't remember how I heard about your book, but I referenced it in Do Less. And then somehow you had realized that, I think, or maybe I had spoken about it on a podcast or I don't really remember. But then you messaged me. And so here we are. And I'm very happy to be here with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember how you knew that I, I was referencing your work? You, I think you tagged me in Instagram at the same time as I was reading your book. Oh, yeah, that's you. Cool. you. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. So I thought, oh, better, I better sort this out. I better honor this. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Now, so your book, the top five regrets of the dying, is. A beautiful reminder, of course, of what living is all about. And I'm curious, why do you think you in particular are the one who wrote this book? Like, what is it about you and your journey that makes you the person to write this? Or why do you think your soul needed this particular assignment? Oh, I love that question. Wow. For two reasons. One is I think my quiet nature turned me into a good listener. So my message was very clear in the book. The translation from, from the dying person to the audience was, was a clear translation. Um, I also think that for my own soul's journey, well, I needed two things. One, I needed to make sure that I didn't live with regrets because I was certainly heading down that road living according to other people's expectations. And the other, you know, it, it's a very big message to be bestowed, to be the messenger for. And I was so deeply introverted that it was unhealthy how deeply introverted I was. So it's only since being given such a massive message to honour that I've really, yeah, I've, I've had to break through those walls and stop hiding from the world. And, and even so, it's taken me probably, I mean, the, the first edition came out seven years ago and I've only contacted you now. And so I've, you know, I've been working through that resistance to public life for, for five or six years. So I think part of that has been my soul's journey to navigate my own way as a gentle introvert with a big message and that helps a lot of other people who also are gentle introverts with, with a big message. So yeah, I think just to, as a blessing to me that I didn't have regrets myself because I can't do this message if I don't walk it myself. And I'm very, you know, I'm massively committed to regret-free living myself now. But yeah, from the patient's perspective, I think just the nature of the relationships that we formed and that I could translate it into everyday language because I'm, I'm not an academic. It wasn't formal research. It was just everyday language. And I think that makes it very relatable for a lot of people. Yeah. How are you transitioning from being this gentle introvert to talking to us right now or speaking or like what does your process look like to prepare yourself 
to be in public? I've just developed a great trust and surrender into life and to know that we're all in this together and we're all vulnerable suffering, you know, working on our inner peace, everything else. So if I focus on the things we have in common, then it doesn't seem so daunting. The other thing is just facing the fact that we're going to die. Like I'm going to die, you're going to die. And if I'm going to die, I don't want to waste my time hiding and, you know, being ridiculous and trying to control my life. I want to serve life and serve my greatest potential to honour humanity and to honour my own joy. And so I use death as a tool for living in the sense that I realise how sacred my time is. And every time I come up against further resistance, I just think, well, does it really matter? (laughs) Does it really matter if you're not perfect, if you can't control every step of the way? If you make mistakes, no, none of it matters. You're human. You're going to make mistakes. You have to see who you can become. And so, yeah, mostly it's, it's about facing the fact that I'm going to die and realizing the sacredness of my time. And that always gives me courage to expand myself further and, and to actually enjoy it once I break through the resistance. Because every time I break through resistance, I form beautiful connections and that's where the, the essence of joy is, isn't it? Through connections. So you know, we can't do everything on our own. We have to, have to push ourselves through and connect with other people. So it's, I get the rewards of those efforts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As I was reading your book and the stories of the people who you tended to as they were transitioning into death, and you did that work for how many years? Eight. Eight years. Eight years. Okay. Yeah. So eight years and... You know, some of the stories were much more heartbreaking in terms of the regret. Like the story I'm thinking of in particular is the woman, I can't remember her name, who really lived under the control of her husband and she was just so bereft on her deathbed because she thought... Grace. Grace. Can you tell a little bit about her story and then I have a follow-up question? Sure, no worries. So Grace had come from a generation that would never leave a marriage and... They even said, what would the neighbours have thought? Uh, She lived in the same street for 50 years, married for over 50 years. In her own words, her husband was a tyrant and uh, very controlling, very dominating. She was a really tiny lady, really sweet. And she had served the marriage, raised some adult children, loved her grandchildren. And all she, she didn't have huge, massive dreams. She just wanted to travel a bit of Australia and he didn't. And so they didn't, they, they didn't do any travel. And then he became ill and had to go into a nursing home permanently. So in that time frame, just after he went into the, the nursing home, she started daring, in, by then she's in her 80s, but she started daring to think about maybe I'll do a bus tour, you know, and just go up to Queensland or to see a little bit of Australia on a bus tour. Went to the travel agent, got the brochures, everything else. And within three weeks of him going into the nursing home, she became ill. And it turned out that she had stage four lung cancer. She'd never smoked, he'd smoked. And she was, yeah, it was terminal. And so she actually never left the home again and had quite a a fast demise. And yeah, as she got close towards the end, she, we, we formed an instant relationship. She reminded me a lot of my grandmother who had died not long earlier and, and I treated her as such as, as a, with the love I would my little grand. And I was also sitting by their bedsides for 12 hours, like from 8am to 8pm, five days a week, six days a week towards the end. 
so it was a very intimate personal relationship. And yeah, she, she made me promise to never make the same mistake as she had. She was so full of self-judgment and anguish over the choices she'd made and, you know, it's crying, you know, why, Bronnie, why didn't I realize sooner? This is, you know, I, I'm so angry at myself. And, and, you know, she, she healed in the last few days because she was so sick. She just had to reach that point of acceptance around the choices she'd made. But yeah, she squeezed my hand so tight that, you know, it was hurting and I was uh, crying, not from my, my squeezed hand, but from her emotional pain. And yeah, she just said to me, whatever you do, don't have this same regret. And that, that was sort of the start into the whole regret awareness. It, it opened my eyes to how intense regret could be. And, yeah, I, I think that that's probably why, I, I don't know, that was the start of my conscious journey into regret because it was so, so incredibly painful for her to have that regret and have reached that point where she, it was too late. There was nothing she could do about it other than try and reach a point of acceptance. Mm -hmm. So my follow-up is there are people who are not imminently dying. We're obviously all dying, but not imminently dying, right? Like they don't have stage four cancer. And yet very present every day are regrets about choices that they made or choices that they didn't make and how their life has turned out. But they're still here and healthy and, you know, and able to, like, it's not like they're going to die in a week or two, right? Like, it's not actually too late. Now, there are things that it's too late, like they can't go back in time and make that different choice, but like it's in terms of they still have this life here. So what's your message to people who are living out regret each day, how can we shift out of living, out of like having regret be the most paramount focus in our lives versus the time we have left? You know what I mean? Absolutely. How you heal the old regrets is with compassion for your old self. Because if you can look back and already regret it, then you've evolved from who you were to who you are now. And mistakes are a part of life. All of us make mistakes. We wouldn't learn without making mistakes. So the only difference between, like all, all regrets are mistakes, but not all mistakes are regrets. So the only thing that really turns a mistake into a regret, in my opinion, is the harsh judgment we put upon ourselves over that mistake. Because they're all just mistakes and they're all just learning things. So we can look at some mistakes and think, oh, what a goose I was. I did something stupid there, but I've learned by it. Or we can look at another mistake and, and, and carry it with guilt and shame and, you know, self-loathing for another 20 years. And the only difference is our judgment upon ourselves. So if we can look back on our old selves with compassion, because if we've already realized it's a mistake, we've already grown and evolved and learned from it. So if we can look back and say, okay, I messed up. If I had my time again, I certainly wouldn't do that, but I can't change that. What I can change is my perspective of this event or these words or whatever, and look back on our old selves with loving compassion for who we were then, because who we were then is not who we are now. If it was, we wouldn't realize the mistake, be making the same mistake exactly the same again. But if, we, if we're looking back with regret, we've already realized the mistake we've made. So 
that old part of ourselves was doing the best they could at the time in that moment. And this new part of ourselves, this older, wiser part of ourselves can actually look back and think, okay, I forgive you. You messed up. I wouldn't have done it that way, but I'm not going to hate you anymore. I'm not going to judge you so harshly anymore. I'm going to love you and forgive you and let's move forward together. I think that piece about the difference between mistakes and, and regrets is something I've never thought about before mm-hmm. yeah. um, and is, yeah, is cool. very powerful. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's what I came to in my own healing, you know, rather because I had to heal my own regrets and make sure I don't carry them forward as well, you know, just accept that mistakes are a part of life. Why is death so uncomfortable for people to talk about? <sighs> well, it's not for a lot of countries. It is for our Western culture. For a lot of countries, it's just part of life. And they speak about it completely openly because they, there's an acceptance of the truth. I think that the fear based around death in, in our Western cultures, you know, certainly Australia's like, like the US and other Western countries, that, that we're just on, on that chase for that elusive inner peace and you certainly don't want death hanging around in a piece. So I think it's a cultural thing, Mike, that, that we don't speak about it enough. And sure, it's depending on your beliefs, it's, it's the end. It's a primal instinct to want to stay alive. So, you know, we've created such a comfortable society that death isn't faced every day. We're, we're not seeing people being cremated and sent down a river on a daily basis and, and stuff like that. So we've put death behind closed doors, which means it's, it's a language we don't speak. And so it's not an area we're comfortable with, but it is a part of life. And the more that we can speak about it on an individual level and local societies, as well as in the big scheme, then it won't be such a scary thing because it's just the truth. It's a part of our soul's journey. Whatever you believe, you know, can bring you comfort or increase your fear. If you feel that there's nothing beyond that, it it will likely be a lot more scary because there's nothing to hold on to and believe beyond that. But I really do believe that the the reason it's so scary is that we don't talk about it enough. Hmm. Did you watch Game of Thrones? No. Okay. So I didn't think you were able to, I would have been really surprised if you said yes, but it was, uh, <laughs> I know it's a whole different world that I haven't discovered, but, uh, it's a whole yeah. I did not watch it. Yeah. And nor okay. Will I. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's extremely violent, right? So all right, no, no, no. one of the things I found fascinating, especially now that like clicked in my head as we're having this conversation is that they would have these massive battles, right? And all of their friends, family, they just, they're slaughtered, they're dead, right? In these battles, because they're at war. And they clean up the battlefield and they take all of their fellow soldiers and family and they stick them on these giant logs and they burn all the dead. And they all say, they say a prayer for the dead and then they just go back to their regular lives. And, you know, the question I just asked in your answer, it was just like, oh, they are very, they know when they are entering the bat, like they're fighting for their family or their castle at this place, right? And that this is just part of, this is what's going to happen. Like we're all going to die. And it was really like honorable to see how they are honoring their fallen soldiers. They were fighting for their greater purpose, right? So 
I, yeah, I just thought that was a good visual. I'm sure many people listening here have watched Game of Thrones. So it's, you know, it's a good visual to think about as we were witnessing that. So yeah, but death. Anyway, that's great. It's great. It's great to know to get an insight into that. But that is actually how a lot of cultures would approach it. Yeah. I mean, it's even happened to people like, wasn't it Osama bin Laden the same way? Like he was, you know, they supposedly America killed him and then he was literally burned. And even Saddam Hussein, it's like, you know, what was public is that we didn't take the bodies. The bodies were burned and then they were dumped in the river. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, you look in, in India all the time, death, death mm-hmm. is everywhere and they're the most accepting. It's a, an overcrowded country. There's extreme poverty. There's, it's, there's a certain chaos that runs there, but there's also a certain sense of order within underneath all of that. And yeah, they're faced with, with death out in the open. And when you, when you spend time in India, they're the most patient, accepting people of everything because they've had to be. It's, it's, it's there in front of them. And, yeah, there's not, not the fear around it. Maybe the primal fear, the instinctive fear to want to stay alive, but, but as a society, it's so inspiring the way they approach it. Mm-hmm. Do you have another question? I have another question. Of course I do. Oh, okay. (laughs) What do you recommend for, I guess, how would you, because like I'm 37 years old. I've had a lot of friends who I've watched my grandparents have were sick and I watched my mom take care of my grandparents. We have a lot of friends now that are taking care of their sick parents. And a lot of times it's, it's like, quote unquote, it just happens, right? It comes out of nowhere that these things take place. So how can we start to, if we live in an environment or a society or a family that doesn't talk about death, how do we start this process to bring it up to even have, I remember I dated a, a woman who came to my parents' house and my parents told me where they were going to be buried in 2008. They like bought their burial plots and they told me and we got back on the plane and she said to me, she goes, didn't that freak you out? And I said, no, I think it's great. Like, I don't have to worry about anything. It's just like everything is taken care of what happens when my parents die, you know, and it really bothered her. So how do we start these conversations? By having them in front of people that get freaked out about it. (laughs) 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 We have to have them. We, We have to, again, use death as a tool for living in the sense that it might be scary to have these conversations in front of people if it's going to make them uncomfortable, but... We realize the more we we face death, the more we realize how precious time is. And we're actually honoring those in our company by speaking about death because we need to all realize how sacred our time is. And when you do realize how sacred your time is, you find the courage to live, you know, how your heart is calling you to live. And that will ultimately serve all of humanity in one way or another. So the more we can have these conversations and be courageous enough to bring this taboo subject into everyday conversations without it starting with, we need to talk, you know, that, that whole preliminary sort of like, here comes a big talk, just sort of bring it into conversation. Like, oh, my parents, you know, my parents have just bought their burial plot or, or when my dad died, da, 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 you know, and speak about things around those chapters, that closing chapter, then it may be uncomfortable for some people, but the more we can bring it in in an everyday conversation, the more that's going to spread and it's going to become a more comfortable subject. Because if we're comfortable with death and talking about death, 
and we're catering to the fears of others who don't want to talk about death, even though it's their journey and we've got to be respectful of that, we're really not doing them service by letting them stay in denial of it because this is a truth. This is one of the, the few things we, we all share that we're going to die. And I've just found that in my experience, when I speak about death and not just in this capacity, in a professional capacity, but I'm just chatting about death with friends or people in my world or just everyday conversations with strangers, if it comes up, that it can be an act of love because we're reminding them of, of a, a very important truth. And hopefully that will seep into their way of thinking and they'll realize, oh, hang on, every single day I live today is one day less of my life. If I'm going to honor my life by honoring my heart and my dreams, I need to get on with this. I need to find the courage to get on with this. And that's how death can actually support, talking about death can actually support the world rather than just catering to people like, I don't want to talk about this. It's like, well, you know, come on, let's find a way to talk about this. Yeah. Without, you know, being forced upon them every time they, they knock on your door. Yeah. So you spent eight years, you know, not straight, but, but more or less as your career sitting by and caring for people who were dying as a palliative care giver. Giver. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So I have never really spent any time with someone who's dying. And I'm curious because I know inevitably I will. I'm curious. (laughs) This sounds like a, a weird question, but like, what sort of tips or wisdom do you have for being with the dying in those spaces where I think a lot of people are afraid of death? So they may now obviously closest friends and family are going to be around. And I know, you know, obviously people who are sick get very tired easily. So it's not like you want to just show up. Um, But what, but, but like, let's say, you know, someone listening is caring for a dying parent or family member or has a friend. What are some ways that we can be with people who are dying and be helpful in that Mm. situation? That's lovely, Kate. Okay, so when I first wrote The Five Regrets, I said in it, you know, in the blog, because it started with a blog, and I said in it when they were asked about their regrets, and then I was slammed for that. You know, I've been slammed for lots of things, but that's public life, whatever. But I didn't actually ask the people directly. I didn't just sit down coldly and say, so, any regrets? It was never that way. The only time there were questions asked was when the person had brought up the subject of regrets, and then it was obvious they wanted to speak, and so I would ask questions that allowed them, as created a safe container for them to share. So, which leads me to, listen, being a really great listener I feel is one of the best things you can do for a dying person. Allow them to steer the conversation. And then if there's questions to support that conversation, bring those questions in because we may want to know lots of things before they die. And hopefully they've got the energy to answer those questions too. But in my experience, what is important to them to share may not necessarily be important for you to hear but it's important for them to share. So I believe one of the greatest acts of love around a dying person is to be there as a listener, not a problem solver, not, um, not a talker, unless they want a conversation, but to be there as a listener with complete acceptance and non-judgment of them because they're judging themselves at that point. And so I think that 
that being the listener is, is the kindest role you can have. The other is what you just said, that they are very tired and to be respectful of that because as people are dying, everyone wants to visit and everyone wants to stay as long as they can. But really a 15-minute visit is enough and don't have them back-to-back with a whole group of people. Like just have one or two people come in for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. The, The dying person will say if they really want them to stay, but, you know, if the other, if the visitor says, oh, I need to go and, you know, gauge that because the dying person out of kindness might say, oh, it's okay, you can sit, you know. But most of the time if they're saying that, they're sort of thinking, I wish you'd go, yeah, sorry, go. I mean, if they really want you to stay, they'll say, no, you stay, stay, please, please, I don't want you to go. But I did see especially people who had been, who were elderly and they hadn't seen their friend, elderly friends for a while and they travelled to visit them and, um, and and they're falling asleep while the person's talking and the person's still blah, 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 talking, talking, talking. And the other person's like, oh, 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 you know, and she's just hanging to fall asleep or he is. And so I think that around the 15-minute mark, take a very honest assessment of am I here just for myself and is this loving to the person who's dying? Because obviously you want as much time with them as possible, but is it the most loving thing to do? You know, perhaps go for an hour and come back for another 15 minutes. But, yeah, towards the end, that is honestly the amount of times I had dying people after I'd see the guests out at the door and I'd come back in and the person would be asleep before I've even come from the front door back to their bedroom or I'd get back and they'd say, oh, thank God. Yeah, just to be back to silence again. It reminds me very much of being postpartum with our babies and very much the same as those first six to 12 weeks where is just like, I was just so tired and we really, yeah, that it was the same recommendation that our midwives gave us or, and our doula, you know, keep visits to 15 minutes. And when they said that, I was like, what? And then when I was in that space, you know, the first one I was recovering from surgery and the second one, I was just recovering from birth, which is a big deal regardless of how it happened. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. More than, honestly, more than 15, 30 minutes was, became too much. So really interesting in that, you know, cyclical living circle of life type concept that when we are ushering life in and out, Mm. less can really be more. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, also for at the start of life for the baby as well, the babies don't need, yeah. You know, they're, they're cuddled and kissed by all these different people and they just want to be attached to you, you know. And I know with my little girl, you know, I, people would just be grabbing her and cuddling her and I'd just, oh, come on, please just, just give her back for a minute and let us be peaceful here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But babies do that. They bring it out of people. Yeah. I know. They do. I know. They're so delicious, but it is oh, so true. Yeah. Like when a mom has a new baby or a dad has a new baby, like people want to come over and hold the baby. Yes. And really, People need help with laundry and maybe making a meal and taking out the trash and things like that, mm. um, which I would imagine there might be things to tend to with dying people as well that people could be helpful with, like helping with the others. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do the gardening. And then go out and do the garden. Don't bring six casseroles a week. You know, people are, 
People are usually down to like half a yogurt or I had one, one woman who was down to one strawberry a day and then she turned it into half a grape a day because she just couldn't eat but she wanted the taste of something sweet. And so we got down to grapes and then she said, oh, actually, it's a bit much. Can you cut it in half? And, yeah, and, and there were people turning up with casseroles. But, I mean, that's good for the family. That's, yes. you know, it helps the family, the family cope. But, uh, yeah, go do the garden or make sure all their bills are paid or do practical things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's mm-hmm. such good advice. That's good advice. Now, with the top five regrets of the dying, which one – do you feel like, I mean, sure, all five of them, but I'm curious, like, which one do you find yourself using as a touchstone most often to remember in your own life? The third one, I, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. That wasn't something that happened much in my conditioning. And it's, I've been forced to, to do that. <laughs> I, after my daughter was born, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis straight after she was born. And so I sort of went on to a massive healing journey there at the same time as five regrets took off in the same, all three things arrived at the same time. So through that healing journey, I've really found that life was cracking me open in the biggest way. And I was, my coping mechanism used to be, that's probably why I was so deeply introverted was that if I wasn't seen or heard, not being noticed was safe. Whereas if I tried to speak up and be heard, it was a really volatile situation. I would put myself in as a child. My, my dad, who's, who's now passed and we, we healed in quite an amazing way, but he was really broken. And yeah, it, it was, I lived most of my childhood in terror. So for me, that was how I handled, how I didn't attract any criticism or ridicule or anger. He's, he was very angry alcoholic. And so for me, my safe place was get out of the way, don't be noticed. And so that meant that for me to actually express myself was massive. And now life then called me to write two memoirs. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a funny old way that life can sort of orchestrate what's perfect for our healing. And yeah, so for me, having the courage to express my feelings, when I saw this happening in the patients, and it wasn't in the, the exact order it wasn't chronological, you know, I put the book together in terms of the regrets, you know, condensing the regrets in just segments of the book, but it wasn't like, okay, I'm, I'm done with the first regret. Now I'm starting to get patients who had the second regret. Right. So yeah, it's like, Oh, cool. Okay. I've done that one. Yeah. So, but this one started coming up and I thought, ah, okay, this is what's I'm going to be the same here. If I don't learn to open up and be honest and express my feelings, I'm going to be the same as this 93-year-old man who is sobbing because he can't express himself to his family or I'm going to be the same as this young guy who's tried to kill himself and now has no legs and because he didn't live up to his family's expectations. And, yeah, it's, I just started seeing elements of my own life woven into the situations I was in and from that, I've just learned to be courageous and be as honest. I mean, we're, we're vulnerable and it's scary and everything else, but it's also incredibly liberating to express your feelings and to be heard and to be honest with yourself and other people, regardless of how that will be received. If you can express yourself honestly, but in the kindest way possible, then you're not going to live with that regret. 
Yeah. And then the other one I want to talk about, which I think is really relevant to our audience, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. um, and a lot of hyperachievers, is the, I wish I hadn't worked so much, or is it, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. So hard, yeah, which so hard. was the same. Yeah, same so. Um, can you yeah. just talk about that a little bit and, and what how it came up in the stories? and? Mm, yeah, so it's not about not loving your work and applying yourself to your work. That's really important to know. What happened, well, it it came up a lot, a lot more than just the stories in the book, but a lot of people realized that they'd made, because they loved their work, especially those who did, but even those who didn't, they'd made work their whole life. And when work was taken away from them, they had absolutely no sense of self, no identity. Their whole identity was wrapped up in their professional role. And they realized that they hadn't allowed enough time for pleasure, for family, for travel, for whatever else their heart was calling them to. Some of it was fear of lack of money. Some of it was fear of how they would be perceived by their peers. And then just that judgment upon themselves that they they had to work hard, like that glorifying of busyness and that working hard was something to to aspire to rather than to find that balance and honour other parts of your life. And yeah, it's, it's a hard one. I actually, that's the first time I ever got slammed over the five regrets was on over that regret because someone in the financial times in the UK said, how dare she say we shouldn't work this hard, blah, 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 blah. You know? And it was actually a friend of mine who I hadn't heard from in 15 years was on the train in, in London and read it and said, Oh, Bronnie, Oh my goodness. You know, got in touch and said, did you know you're being slammed in, in the financial times? And I said, Oh, well, don't shoot the messenger. You know, I'm, I'm, not the person who made this up. I'm the person who witnessed the pain of people with regrets who have worked too hard. And so when I've incorporated that to my own ethos, my own way of living, what I've realized is if you leave space for the other areas of your life and space for no plans, I'm I'm a great advocate of space, you actually bring far more efficiency into your life anyway. And that takes courage and trust and surrender that you will. But as you develop that space, that habit of space and that habit of not working so hard, and I mean, you guys know you're you're doing the whole, you know, less thing yourself. So, you know, do less, be more. And, And it's true because you bring so much more efficiency to your life and you can create systems that actually support you to not have to work so hard. And then you may be working a lot less hours, but the hours that you are working are just as productive as the hours that you spent chasing your tail, trying to work your 50 or 60 hour weeks. Absolutely. So you're saying just so I can actually creating space for yourself is more, will create a more efficient work life. Mm. Yeah, it sure will. It sure will, Mike, because you end up hearing your heart. Well, there's, there's two things I've found happen. One is that you become a lot more present. And so you actually hear your own heart's guidance. And so you're more open to ideas that you may have been trying to find a solution to something. So for me, I, I create, so when I say creating space, I create enough space that even if life's really busy, I will schedule it in sometimes where I think, okay, there's no space here. I need some space. And by space, I mean time with no plans and to allow your heart to guide you on that day 
with whatever it wants to do. More often than not, my heart will just say, get on your push bike, go for a ride. And so I just go for a ride. And in that, it untangles all the, you know, the cobwebs or the overthinking or the, the technology language or energy. And I just go for a ride and I just be present and I enjoy the ride. And more often than not, I mean, I can't force it. I can't say, come on, life, I'm here now. Give me that answer I was looking for. Give it, you know, hurry up. I've only got half an hour. But it's more that just being present and enjoying myself and giving myself that space without an agenda, it clears the mind enough so that I can actually hear the guidance that wants to come through. And so that's one part of And so then I come back to work and I know the answer. Uh, I've found the solution or I at least know the next step to take but not if I'm trying to force the guidance through you have to just let go and enjoy the space be present and in the the worst thing that's happened is you've given yourself a couple of hours of ease and so what that's you know that that's a gift a gift of love to yourself but what what can also happen is that in my case I find myself regularly maybe I just expect it now as well but I end up in conversations with strangers and they'll say something that is the answer I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And it may not be, oh, I know a guy who can do this for you or I know, I know the right woman for you. It's not that. It's they might just say, oh, yeah, that happened to me once. I was down there. Or even, you know, I was just down fishing and, you know, the wind blew up and, you know, that might lead to some random conversation because I'm on my bike and they're, they're around. And, and then just one line of the conversation, I'll, I'll ride home, that line will be playing, I think, Ah, okay. This makes sense to where I'm at in my time. So, yeah, so it's a gift of love to yourself anyway because it gives you more, it takes you away from your work, but it doesn't detract from the quality of your life. It enhances it. And so that overflows into your working life anyway. It just takes a lot of courage to give yourself that permission sometimes. It really does. Have you learned more about yourself during the eight years of being with the people that were dying or have you learned more now since your book has released to the world? Wow. Uh, I think that was a, that was a a good question there, I guess. Yeah. I've never been asked that one at all or anything close to it. I've learned more since because having witnessed the pain from them, I made the commitment to implement regret-free living into my way of life to create a a way to be regret-free. And that has been massive to actually heal to the level that I could permit myself the things that my heart wanted. And that's been a much bigger journey to break through the resistance of allowing myself to, to receive those blessings and joy and to expand my experience of life to the point that I know that I am completely on the right track for being regret-free. I, I, I could die tomorrow and I would be regret-free. And any mistakes I'm going to make in the future, they're going to be mistakes and they're not going to be regrets. But to get to this point in myself has been a much bigger learning that, because I had to implement it. So it was, it was an internal journey more than observing the other people's journey. And, yeah, it's been, it's been much harder. And, and it is hard to make long-lasting change to make permanent change from who you were from your conditioning but the rewards are are so incredibly beautiful and liberating that any amount of effort is worth it Mm. Mm. so you just said something 
that I would love to expand on would be, you said that you make mistakes now, like you're still making mistakes, but you're not making regrets. I think that's, you said something yes, along those lines. but they won't be regrets. But they won't be regrets. So yes. explain that piece. Okay. Well, they won't be regrets because I've learned to be kind enough to myself to not judge myself around them. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm a parent. I make mistakes every day. And I even say to my daughter, I'm still learning, honey. I've never been a mum before and we never stop learning. But I'm, I make plenty of mistakes. We, we all do. That's, that's if, if we weren't making mistakes, we'd, we'd be done. We've, we've ticked all the boxes and we've learned what we're here to learn. But I'm not going to judge myself now because I deserve my own love. We all deserve our own love and we don't deserve judgment. We cop enough judgment from, from the world, from society. But we need to be the examples to show other people that judgment is, is a terrible, awful waste of time upon ourselves and upon other people. We're all doing the best we can. And so through my um, healing journey with disease and, and you know, having that with motherhood, you know, I've had to learn to go be really gentle on myself and that has overflowed into the internal as well. It's, it's not just go gentle and not fill up my physical life too much, but, but also just go very gently on, on who I am, that, that I'm a woman doing her best and, you know, you're a woman and a man doing their best. And so I think that I just love compassion. Compassion is such an amazing force. And as I've developed compassion, so to heal my relationship with my dad over the years before he died, it had to be compassion. There was nothing else I could do. I, I couldn't reason with someone who, who was just so, so broken in, in such a different place. And so it was compassion that healed us. And, and we, we came to a really lovely, lovely place together as much as he was able to, as much as I was able to in the dynamics of who we were. But it was only compassion that did that. And I just feel that compassion for ourselves, it's not feeling sorry for ourselves and staying in a victim mode. I've, I've been there too. That, that just holds us back. That just holds us back from the joy that wants to come through. And it also repels other people instead of forming beautiful connections. But compassion can be looking back and, and feeling sorry in the sense that, okay, you have suffered and I'm going to hold hold you with love, you know, that part of you with love and know that you have suffered and I, I understand and acknowledge that suffering, but I'm going to love you and let's move forward together with a compassionate heart from now on so that you don't have to suffer anymore based upon your own judgment. And so that's how my future mistakes aren't regrets because I'm going to make mistakes all the time and I'm going to love myself enough to think, oh, okay, well, that's part of being human. That's part of my journey. I'm going to learn from these mistakes and I'm going to love myself enough to even bring humor into it, compassion and humor thing. Oh, you goose, look what you've done, you know, rather than, oh, man, and, you know, turn it over and over and over. And, I mean, children especially are such, are such great teachers of that. They just forgive you. Uh, you know, Ellen and my daughter, if I say sorry to her, she says, that's okay, Mum, I forgive you. We always say I forgive you in, in our little family. And, but she does. She's forgiven it and it's gone. She doesn't need to rehash it. You know, if I say later in the day, oh, I really messed up this morning. What? Like she's moved on. Forgive. And so it's like we've, we've got to stop, you know, 
overthinking it and forgive ourselves with with gentleness and and just realize that it's just part of the human journey to to not not have it all worked out totally Mm. Yeah. I love that wisdom. So you've recently come out with an updated and revised version. Can you tell us a little bit about what was updated and what inspired you to update the book? Sure. Thanks, Kate. Yep. So what was updated was it was edited. The first edition was rejected by 25 publishers. And so I just thought, oh, well, I'll just put it out myself. And I knew nothing about book writing or publishing at the time. So I just put it out. It took off ridiculously and then Hay House picked it up in the same 24 hours as my daughter was born. They rang me and, yeah, I'd sent out a prayer the night before doing interviews while I'm in labour at like 11 o'clock at night just saying, right, I'm going to quit this journey, send me some help and Hay House turned up the next day. Thank you, thank you. And so it just they wanted to sort of put it out, catch the wave that I'd created, so they put it out as it was and that's been translated into 32 languages with a movie in the pipeline. So I said to Reed at Hay House, when the movie comes out, could we do an updated version of Five Regrets? Because I'd really like to just tidy up the writing a little bit. And because I've since written two other books and so my writing has improved. I understand the publishing game a lot more. And so he just said, well, let's just do it anyway. I said, great, fantastic. And so the writing is tighter. What I realized was, say, for example, I may have said one thing in, uh, in the first sentence of a paragraph, and then I've realized I've said nearly the same thing in a different way in the third sentence of the paragraph. Right. Those are one sentence now. So it's tighter writing. I also shared a little bit more about my own personal journey, just a few snippets here and there, because I'm not as guarded and mm-hmm. um, withdrawn as I was when I wrote that. It was a real stretch to write such a personal memoir mm-hmm. the first time around, whereas now I just, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm human. I've made mistakes. I don't care. So I shared a little bit more about that. And in my third book, Bloom, I speak about timing and readiness a lot. So this edition of Five Regrets really aligns with my timing and readiness to step out a lot more into the public role that I've been bestowed because initially I just put that book out and then I was, you know, trying so hard to to just manage my child, my my health and my the shock of parenthood that you that first child is like holy dooly yeah so you know my daughter's seven and a half now and I'm in a different place so yeah that's that's what it is it's just a better quality book on all Mm. accounts and I'm I'm really proud of it and and really grateful that I've had the opportunity to give it a, a second life yeah well, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. I, I absolutely just love what you're teaching and it's informed, you know, some of my work and I loved being able to include it and do less. So, and people should find the book, I would imagine anywhere books are sold or is there a yes. place you'd like them to go? Well, check out my website, bronnieware.com. That, that will help, help you get to know me better. And, and there's other resources there as well. But yeah, certainly there's, they can be found there or, or any good bookstores. And, you know, ideally try and support the independent booksellers because they're doing an amazing job. But thank you to all the big booksellers too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta thank everybody. Don't want to exclude yeah. anyone here, yeah. but yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> Where's your, uh, talk about this movie. Okay, so it's been a bit of a journey. We were a couple of years into it and then the original writer came up against some blockages around death and so we had to change writers a couple of years into it. And so it's a German production company but 
we're just, I, I can't say who, but we, we're just signing the director around now. And she's a woman who has worked a lot in America, but she's from Europe originally. It's going to be in English. It's the most conscious team I've ever worked with. There is just so much love in this project. So I guess it's still, um, it's about two years off. Yeah, it's, I mean, the top five regrets of the dying, the book is a memoir of my journey and how it was transformed around these regrets. So it is that, but it's, it's not an exact replica of the movie because you can't really have 15 dying people in a movie or our main commitment is to the message to not, yeah. not lose the power of the message. So yeah, it's, it's for someone who has been very introverted. It's been a real, you know, that's it, the journey in itself to have a movie made about yourself, about your life. So, oh my goodness me, how did that one happen? But I also feel honored that it's being approached with such integrity and love. So I'm, I'm just going to trust in the process because life has shown me the more I can trust, the more it's actually on my side. So beautiful. beautiful. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It was wonderful conversation. Loved learning from you. Congratulations on everything you're doing. Thank you. And thank you both. I just love the dynamics of you both on your podcast. And I think the messages that you are bringing to the world equally powerful and necessary. So thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you, Bronnie. If you ever find yourself in Maine, come look us up. I sure will. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Are you a female business owner who wants to grow her business while doing less using the philosophies and the methodology of do less? We are doing a waitlist opening of Origin Collective, the membership where we have built an incredible world-class community of women committed to growing their businesses while doing less, where you get training, support, accountability, connection, coaching, all of it as part of the membership. And we're doing a waitlist opening next week. It's not going to be publicly available. It's only available if you are on the waitlist. So head over to origincollective.com to get your name on the waitlist so that you will be notified when the doors are open. Origincollective.com. Grow your business while doing less.